Good morning, let me add my welcome to that which has already been shared. I'm Pastor Celeste Cranston, appointed to Seattle Pacific University and glad to be here with you this morning. I want to begin by expressing my appreciation to Pastor Matt Poole for his faithfulness to us, to his congregation in the midst of this pandemic and also for the opportunity this morning to lead us in worship and to, to share the message from the word of the Lord. So as we turn to that, I invite you just now for a moment to take a deep breath. To center yourself in God's loving presence. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, we pray. You are our rock and our redeemer. And all God's people said, amen. Well, it was so brief, I almost didn't catch it. I was slumped in front of my computer Computer and blurry-eyed and trying to focus in the middle of the umpteenth Zoom meeting of my day when a statement caught my attention. There is no such thing as a virtual human being. Well, my first response was, well, yes, duh. But then it hit me how ironic that is, that statement coming to me from a screen in the middle of a virtual meeting. <laughs> and now here I am sharing it with you on live stream. Whatever that is, thanks be to God that we have it. But what an odd thing. In fact, it's not just odd, it's confusing in a way because I may seem close, but in reality, I'm far, and the image of my face may be clear, but in truth, it's projected. <laughs> and you may be with me, in a sense, but my guess is that you're home, in your living room, or kitchen, or bedroom, and maybe even still in your pajamas. If so, I say, more power to you. But no such thing as a virtual human being. That's because God created us for and wired us for something else, for an embodied physical interaction. And all our relationships, our worship, our identity is grounded in the tangible. That's why this morning I long to shake your hand, to look you in the eye, maybe give you a hug, to, to pass the peace of Christ with you, to hear you singing beside me and praying with me the Lord's Prayer, and then walking forward to take the body and blood of Jesus from the hand of a living, breathing human being. I wonder what you may be missing this morning in our worshiping together. And I invite you to take a moment and think about that. What are you missing most in worshiping together? And take a moment to, to share that thought. If you choose, put it into the chat. Our moderator, Mireya, I understand, is, is moderating today. So Mireya will interact with you. We want to hear from you. 
What are you missing most? It is right, it is good to lament what we don't have in that physical connection today. Well, friends, it's not surprising that some of us feel exhausted after months of virtual meetings and isolation. It's not surprising that this feels like a never-ending, numbing ice age, as Andy Crouch has called it. It's not surprising that some days we don't even know what day it is. Have you heard the saying, before the virus, we had Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, but now all we have is Blur's Day. Yeah, it's real. And something is wrong in this. Now, I don't mean the coronavirus itself, which of course is this terrible, devastating thing. And I certainly don't mean our governor's stay home, stay safe order, or the way that our church has responded. We have had to adapt, and it is the right thing to do so. It's an act of love. And I call us to persist in this loving way. But what is wrong is that in this online world, it's hard. It's hard to touch bottom. It's hard to touch and know those deep longings of our hearts. Because this virtual life is at odds with the way we were created, the way God comes to us. You see, the whole of our Christian faith centers on a God who chooses to come to us in tangible, incarnate ways. There is no such thing as a virtual human being because there is no such thing as a virtual God. Today's scriptures shed light on this. The story just read for us in Acts 17 opens with Paul, who asked by the Athenians to come and explain this new teaching begins by naming their very religious ways. In fact, he says, wow, you've even made an altar to an unknown God. <laughs> but instead of chiding them, Paul assumes that this altar-making obsession of theirs stems from a desire for God. And from that point, he sees an opening to proclaim the God who is one they can worship, one they can know. You see, the Athenians are like many of us, stuck in sort of a catch-22, if you will. They have this desire for God, or at least a desire to please God, but they assume that God really can't be known. So they cover their bases. They build whatever altars they can. They aimlessly fling their prayers into outer space, hoping that they'll somehow stick, if you will, to the cosmic refrigerator and be heard. Does that sound familiar? Paul sees that catch-22, and then he builds on that desire for God by saying, let me tell you, about the Lord of heaven and earth, the God who can be known. Paul explains it this way. First he says, the Lord of heaven and earth is powerful. The almighty God of creation who gives life and breath. A God not served by human hands. 
and in the ultimate expression of God's tangible power, a God who raises Jesus from the dead in the flesh, in the body. That is the powerful God, the Lord of heaven and earth. But then Paul also says, this Lord of heaven and earth is relational. Do you see that? One who can be known, one who in fact isn't far from each one of us, and one who wants us to seek him. At that point, then Paul kind of starts speaking the Athenians' language, if you will, by quoting the ancient poets. We're going to look at those. Let's take the second quote first. Paul says, we are God's offspring. Now let's pause for a moment and ponder that. We are God's offspring. We say it all the time. We're children of God. <laughs> but what does it mean? And what does it matter? Keep in mind that in a healthy relationship, a parent, while being all-powerful to that child, is also dialed in to the relational and emotional and spiritual needs of that child. And that's just how Paul describes God, powerful and yet relational. Whether or not we like to admit it, that bond between the parent and the child or that deep desire for a bond is so strong that most of us spend our grown-up days either pulling back from that or, or pushing against it. But we don't start out that way. We start out as babies, completely bonded, so much so that we don't even know as babies that we're separate from our mother. There literally isn't a separation. And the only way we as babies encounter the world or know who we are is through that parent. So that leads us to the other quote, in God. We live and move and have our being. In other words, we don't exist outside of God. Though we think of ourselves as independent, in truth, every part of our life is framed by and lived within this loving God. <laughs> Consider waking, sleeping, at peace or in stress, Singing or silent, eating, walking, laughing, crying, healthy, or in the midst of a heart condition, a young child, or the one at the last stages, all of us live and move and have our being in God. Whether or not we acknowledge it, we're created that way for relationship, in relationship, by relationship with God. For years, my spiritual director has been saying something to me. I'm, I'm just still trying to grasp it. He says that is what is most true of me, and I say to you this morning, what is most true of you is not my brokenness, my family history, my competencies, my tendencies, my personality, or even my number on the Enneagram. <laughs> as interesting and helpful and, and, and important to my story as each of those things are. No, what is most true about me, the most celeste thing there is, 
the most Ron thing there is, the most Courtney thing there is, or Mary, or Cindy, or the most Mireya thing there is, my friend, is our deep desire for God. That is the very essence, the very core of who we are. Augustine put it this way, you've made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. But how does that deep longing get satisfied? Well, our other text, John 14, presents a picture of God and us. And it's this intertwined, bonded, connected relationship. Jesus says, because I live, you live in me, and I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you, and he who loves me will love my Father, and I too will love him. And I tried to diagram this, but it's, it's too complex. It's too hard. It's very entangled. I, I can't even grasp it, much less begin to draw. But at the heart of that mishmash of relationships, is a promise, a promise to hang on to. It's the very best news when Jesus says, I will not leave you orphaned. I am coming to you. Do you see where we are? We're right back to that potent image of the parent and the child. But this goes beyond. It's the next step. Not only is this a parent child, but we as children are not orphans. That means it's not up to us to somehow be good enough to earn our way to God. God comes to us right where we are. I have a friend who talks about the lie in my head. And I've pondered that phrase and come to believe that one of the most persistent lies in my head, one of those false narratives that shapes how I live and move and have my being is that when it comes down to it, I'm really alone. I'm an orphan. And that narrative goes on to deceive me, further saying, so you know what? It's up to you to make something out of yourself. Uh-huh. You need to prove yourself, build that life as an altar to some unknown God. It's a lie, but it's a powerful lie. I oversee a ministry at Seattle Pacific University called Soul Care, and it's centered on the question, how goes it with your soul? And in that ministry, I have the privilege and gift of working with a team of seminarians and undergraduate students and with our School of Theology faculty. But one of the things we repeat often is a truth that we're trying to let sink into our lives, and it's this. No one does this alone. No one does this alone. That means I'm not an orphan. That means that when I'm not okay, I don't have to pretend. That means when I'm failing, I can still be seen and loved. Because nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing, can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Thanks be to God.
So as we close, I invite you now just to take a few moments and consider what might be the false narratives in your life. Ways that perhaps you've been shaped by the lie that, that you are an orphan. We're going to put on the screen a few of these narratives, but I want you just to take a little time and ponder these and then think about which one resonates with you. And then I encourage you to discuss this with someone today. Being orphaned. Which false narratives of being orphaned resonate with me? One, I can't know God as my parent, and I am not known by God. Two, I'm alone, and I have to prove myself. Three, I have to earn love. I can't assume it. Four, I live in fear because there's no one really watching out for me. Take a moment. Listen to the false narratives in your own head and ponder these just for a moment. And then as we close in prayer, I invite you now to listen for a different voice. Listen for the voice of Jesus who is saying, I will not leave you as orphans. I'm coming to you. Thanks be to God. Let's pray.